if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 37. It's page 850 in the Bibles there in the chairs. You're welcome to use those. We'd encourage that. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. Now today we get to finish our mini-series on Mark 13, which the issue we've covered over and over again is the issue of watchfulness. Jesus makes all sorts of predictions in Mark chapter 13, predictions that are future to him, but are past to us. And he does that in order to help his disciples, to help his followers to remain watchful, so that they would stand guard, so that they would stay awake. Now when I say watchful, what I don't mean is that we just kind of sit back and we look to the skies, just kind of waiting peering behind every cloud to see if Jesus is kind of descending back to heaven or from heaven to earth on this cloud. That's not what I mean, this, this sort of retreatalism and, and stepping aside and waiting and disengaging from the world, awaiting Christ's return. But I'm talking about things that happened in the past that give us confidence, that motivate us to stay alert and to live our lives in a different way, hoping and longing for His return. You know, I find it really perplexing that so many people go to this passage, Mark chapter 13, and have tried to use it to make predictions about the end of the world when it's flat out going to tell us today, no one knows the day or hour. It's just ironic to me that they don't think that no one means no one. As I was preparing this week, I I did a quick Internet search and came across two independent sources. They don't quote one another. They have a lot of of resources to support, but it's not like purely scholastic, so you have to keep that in mind. But both of these sources indicate that in the past 2,000 years, there have been over 240 end times predictions made. 240 of them. These are by folks who either profess to be Christians or they come from cults that were derived from Christianity or cults that were derived from Judaism. Okay? 240 of these predictions in the past 2,000 years. I'm very fortunate that I have survived over 200 of them. Right? Many of them have came and gone before I was ever born. Hear this. This is amazing. Since I've been alive, there have been 102 of them that have come and gone already. And after December 21st, there will be 103. Right? 102 from 1978 to 2012. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're on their 11th prediction, or is it their 12th? Y2K, what's there to say? Harold Camping, you know, he didn't get it wrong once, but three times, you might not know this, three times his first prediction was September 6th, 1994. When that came and went, he realized that he had miscalculated and decided to go back and do the math again, came up with May 21st, 2011. Well, that came and went, and after millions of dollars spent, he realized, I can't just drop the ball on this. I'm going to multiply five times two, and we're going to change it to October 21st, 2011. But after that came and went, he decided to retire. Praise the Lord. But over the centuries, not just in America, but throughout the world, hundreds, if not thousands of people have fallen prey to this desire to know the day and hour. And they have spent themselves on it. They have Some have given up their livelihoods to bank on a false claim. And yet we can be sure of this, that from now until the time of Christ's return, there will be many more people who make predictions about the end of the world, which will be wrong, and there will be many other people who invest heavily in order to follow in those claims. Throughout this chapter, Jesus has made numerous predictions about future events. Not so that we can sky gaze. Not so that we can try to determine the day and hour, try to predict Christ's return down to the minute and sit idly abide waiting for that to happen. No, Jesus tells us these things so that we might stand guard. 
so that we might be ready for anything. Mark 13 is not about trying to predict when Jesus will come back. Instead, Jesus exhorts us three times to see. He comforts us, saying, do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. Three times he admonishes us to be on guard, and three times he commands us, stay awake. The overwhelming theme of Mark 13 is watchfulness. Jesus makes predictions regarding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple for a reason. And as we have gone through Mark 13, we have seen that. I put a slide up here so you can kind of just follow through what, why Jesus makes these indications. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus makes these predictions in order to help his followers to persevere to persevere against deception, to persevere under persecution, to persevere to fulfill the mission, and to persevere by enduring to the end. In verses 14 through 23, Jesus made predictions in order to protect his followers. Those who were alive at that time during the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, he wanted them to have time to get out. And so he prepared them for this coming abomination of desolation and for this coming tribulation that would fall in 70 A.D. His predictions serve as proof that he is the Son of God. We saw that in verses 1 through 4 and in verses 24 through 27. But they also serve to promise his return and a coming judgment. They point to that ultimate end in verses 24 through 27. And then in 28 through 31, Jesus predicts in order to give his followers a present peace of mind amidst trial and tribulation because he promises that he will always be near to them and that though heaven and earth will pass away, his words will never pass away. Now notice, as you look at all of these, you don't see many imperatives, do you? You see indicatives. He's telling us truths, truths which are to help us to understand who he is and why he does what he does. But now, in verses 32 through 37, he moves into the implications that these truths ought to have on our lives. Okay? Now, more than any time before, he's saying, okay, in light of all of this, here's what you do. Here's how you should act. And Jesus makes these predictions so that we might be prepared you see, only, only the Father knows when Jesus will return. And so we must be ready. So please read with me Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. It says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know that when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The first truth that we see from this passage is that only the Father knows when Jesus will return. You know, so often we think that our motivation for readiness must come from a future warning, kind of a future danger, rather than proof from the past. So often when we come to this passage, we kind of come at it like, okay, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? Really? Really? Now, there's some truth to that, okay? But it's not your motivation for readiness is not fear. It's to come from the fact of who Christ is and what He has already done. And that ought to motivate us to be ready. In Mark 13, 32-37, this concludes a larger section that we saw where Jesus is condemning the worship and the leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. That chapters 11-13 through 13 are that larger context that you have to fit everything into. And we have to remember, again, that thir chapter 13, verse 2, is a key verse for us to understand all of chapter 13. Because in, in verse 2, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. He says, no stone will remain upon another. And so, in verse 4, 
the, you see four of his disciples come and ask him privately, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They want to know when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished. So they're asking questions regarding the destruction of the temple. We can't lose sight of that, okay? We must keep that in mind. And so the rest of chapter 13, Jesus is answering that question. When will the temple be destroyed? Okay? Now notice that Jesus doesn't give them an exact date. Instead, he tells them that false Christs and prophets will come and they will misinterpret wars and famines and earthquakes in order to attempt to deceive people into following them. He warns them that persecution will arise from governing authorities and even loved ones, even people that are close to you. He tells them that Despite that persecution, they will succeed in proclaiming the gospel to all nations. They would know to flee Jerusalem when they see an outrageous desecration occur, escaping quickly before a terrible tribulation falls upon the city. But this horrible event that happens will actually be proof that Jesus truly is the Son of God, proof that is without question, proof that is undeniable, uncontestable, historic proof in the eyes of those who would condemn him eyes of those who would hate him, the eyes of those who would spit upon them, they are left with complete evidence of Jesus' deity. But it would also be a promise and a present comfort that until Jesus returns again to judge, that he would be near them, he would be with them, and that his words would never, ever pass away. All of that that I said was fulfilled in a representative sense by 70 A.D. when this prediction actually happened. The temple was destroyed. And though it points forward to a future return of Jesus, it is primarily fulfilled in the past. All of that is background to verses 32 through 37. We've got to keep that in mind as we look at this passage. But now, here in verse 32, a time shift is about to occur. Things are changing. Jesus is turning his attention from things that were primarily fulfilled in the past but had a secondary fulfillment in the future to now shifting and saying there is primary fulfillment in our future but it points to a secondary fulfillment in the past. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's, he's talking about primarily things that were in our past but points to the future but now he's changing. It says this is our future but it points backwards to the past. This will make sense as we go along. In verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour. So he's continuing the thought, but he wants to give clarification on that day or that hour. Now, so far in in Mark 13, Jesus has been referring to these things being fulfilled in those days. These are two very confusing indefinite subjects that he refers to over and over and over again. All right? These things, in those days, has referred to that time that was surrounding the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. It's future to Jesus and to his disciples who he's speaking to, but it's an immediate future, one that is past to us who live almost 2,000 years later. But now, here in verse 32, Jesus is getting more specific. Instead of saying, in those days... He now says, in that day. And not only does he say, in that day, he says, in that hour. You see, he's zooming in. He's getting very specific and very particular. He wants us to know and understand that a time shift has occurred. This is different from those days that he was speaking about before. Nor does Jesus speak about these things as he did before. He tells us what these things are. You just have to read 1 through 31. You can get a pretty good idea of what these things are. We've covered them already. But now his subject has changed. Now he's focusing on this coming that we see in verse 33. For you do not know when the time will come. And in verse 35, you do not know when the master of the house will come. This is a different time, and he's focusing on a particular and distinct event. And by saying, but concerning that day, he is referring back to the coming that we saw in verse 26. But when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So all that to say that Jesus is saying now, 
concerning that day or hour when the Son of Man comes in great power and glory. He's zooming in. He wants you to understand what he's talking about with regards to that. Okay? Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, now wait, last week when we talked about verse 26, you said that this primarily was fulfilled in the past because this is... Jesus coming in the clouds refers to his exaltation before the throne of God, that that has already happened, that is uncontestable proof, historical proof, that Jesus is the Son of God. And I, I'm, yeah, absolutely. But remember, I said that it also points forward, right? Here in verse 32 is where we see it most clearly pointing forward, okay? Now, Matthew, in his parallel account, he adds a whole other chapter, Matthew 25 is an additional chapter which makes it clear that Jesus is referring to a future return here, okay? But again, Mark wants to show us that Jesus is right now currently reigning in power. He is the Son of God. The destruction of the temple was uncontestable, historical proof that he has been exalted to the right hand of God because Jesus said it was going to happen, and it happened exactly the way that he said that it would. And yet that coming of the Son of Man to God in the glory of heaven, it foreshadows the promise of His return in power and glory as He reigns over the earth. You know, many other passages in the Bible teach of the second coming of Christ. It talks about how it will be sudden, that it will be unexpected, that it will be personal, the real person, Jesus. He will come bodily, and it will be visible to the whole world. Not one person will fail to recognize that this has happened. Now, although I can't take time to refer to them all, I just want to point out three of them to kind of highlight this. In in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, after Jesus' disciples had just watched him ascend bodily into heaven, two angels appeared to them and they said, Men of Galilee, why are you looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. So throughout the New Testament, the return of Christ is given as a reason to hope, as a reason to long, as a reason to persevere in the faith, as a reason to preach the gospel, even in the face of persecution, and a reason to pursue holy living. Now I have to ask you at this point, how does the guaranteed return of Christ affect your daily life? Do you see it as a motivation for holy living? Do you see it as a motivation to proclaim the gospel boldly to those around you? Do you see it as as a reason to persevere in faith? I mean, the Bible is clear. Jesus will come back again. And because he is going to come back again, we are to be ready. Jesus is telling us that very thing. And I have to ask you, are you prepared to give an account of how you spent your time, how you spent your life here and now? Because that has very significant consequences. There's a reason why you are here, and He is not yet, but He will be. And we can't neglect that fact. Jesus will return in glory. But as for the day and hour, no one knows but God. Again, let's read verses 32 through 33. It says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So who knows the day and hour according to this passage? Does Harold Camping know the day or hour 
Do the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mayans know the day or hour? No, it says only the Father knows the day and the hour. Mankind does not know the day or hour. Now apparently, Jesus knew that there were going to be a lot of thick-headed people because he gives us this warning not once but twice. Notice that he says there in verse 33 and again in verse 35, you do not know when. So we need to take a hint here, right? We just need to give it up. We're not going to know. These four disciples, those that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they didn't know the day or hour. If you read Paul in his letters, you recognize Paul did not know the day or hour, right? Mankind will not know the day or hour. You will not know the day or the hour. Now, somewhere along this series, I don't know whether it was in my community group or whether it was here, maybe multiple of you, folks of you just asked me the question, well, how does a guy like Harold Camping get around this passage? How does, how does he interpret this? How does he understand this? Well, and I said, well, the answer is actually pretty easy. Either he ignores it, he rejects it, or he doesn't think that it applies to him. I mean, those are the only options. Right? He either ignores it, he rejects it, or he doesn't think that it applies to him. But I should, should say this about Harold Camping. Despite growing up in the Christian Reformed Church, he ended up leaving the church and rejecting almost all that it taught, including a lot of doctrines of grace, doctrines like the total depravity. He became an annihilationist. He didn't believe in a literal hell, right? <clears throat> and, uh, and then he ended up claiming, this was kind of surprising, he ended up claiming that all churches, all churches, so Redeemer Church is included in this, has become apostate and therefore should be rejected. Right? What he said is all that you need is personal Bible study and subsequently his radio program. So I'm convinced. So it's not surprising that a guy like that who rejects other clear aspects of God's word would also reject this statement. But we cannot. He only serves to prove the point that you do not know the day or the hour. That's why I said a few weeks ago, if you go to your local Christian bookstore, you can just ignore the prophecy section. It's all wrong, okay? If you get a piece of junk mail in in your mailbox that that has some event where some guy's going to predict the end of the world, just put it where junk belongs, right? If somebody hands you a flyer saying, hey, this guy is going to tell us when Jesus is coming back, you can say, I'm predicting that the dude is wrong. And if they question you, you just point to this verse. It's okay. Mankind will not know the day or the hour, and nor will the angels. The angels are non-physical, immortal, glorious, spiritual beings who obey, worship, and submit to God in all things. They are servants of God. And if you read Scripture, you see that they are described as glorious and terrifying. And as glorious and terrifying as they are described in Scripture, we are never called to worship them. In fact, we're called not to to worship them very specifically. They dwell with God. They do God's bidding. They sometimes carry God's messages to his people, but they do not know the day or hour. The next one tends to throw us a bit. It says, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, this has been one of those passages that people go to in an attempt to deny the deity of Christ. Well, the Son can't be the Son of God. If the Son and the Father are one, then how is it that He does not know the day or hour? He must be less than God if He does not know when He will return. Only God knows when He will return. Right? This has been an argument since the days of Arius in the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. But it's an argument that is still held today by Jehovah's Witnesses, by some Mormons, and by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church of Arian Catholicism. Okay, H-C-A-C-A-C, or Hakakic for short, not to be confused with Habakkuk. Now, I joke about that, but this is a real deal. I mean, people really struggle with this concept. I should first preface it with this, though. Jesus does not make this statement in order to teach us about Christology. Okay, Jesus doesn't make this statement right here in order to tell us how exactly the Trinity works together, like how he can be of one essence with the Father and yet a distinct person. 
That's not Jesus' goal. That's not what he's trying to do. He's, instead, he says this in order to admonish his, his followers to be on guard and keep awake. That's the purpose of the statement. So we can't turn this into some grand, systematic, theological statement. That's not the way that it was intended. But that being said, let's still deal with it. The New Testament is filled with passages that affirm the deity of Jesus. They're all over. Uh, I mean, just John, as far as a book and a whole, I mean, just it nails it over and over and over again. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. In John 20, Jesus receives worship from Thomas as Thomas proclaims, My Lord and my God. Romans 9, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. But you don't even have to go outside the book of Mark to see it. I mean, do you remember how Mark 1 begins after the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Right, the very next verse, Mark quotes from Isaiah 40 about this voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. When he says Lord, he means God, preparing the way of God. And then what happens there in verse 4? He begins to talk about John the Baptist being in the wilderness, preparing and pro- proclaiming the way of Jesus. Right? And so you see that connection. You, real, you realize right there in Mark 1, you've got a clear indicative that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. John is that voice in the wilderness preparing the way of God, of Yahweh, of the Son, Jesus Christ. But we see the authority of Christ over and over and over again. I mean, Jesus has taught with authority. Jesus has shown that he has authority over the law. Jesus has forgiven sin. He has healed the sick and the lame. He has the authority to cast out demons and they flee. He has the authority to control nature. He has authority over death itself. I mean, what more proof do we need to see that Jesus is Lord? But even in this passage a passage that is so often used to argue against the deity of Christ, I actually understand to suggest Christ's deity. It's the exact opposite. He says, nor the Son, but only the Father. And the proclamation is given in the names that he uses. This is one of the few verses in Scripture where Jesus doesn't refer to himself as the Son of Man, but instead refers to himself as the Son. That is a claim to divinity. And even more than that, he calls God Father, the all-knowing, all-powerful, God over all, God of the universe, he declares to be Father. Who else calls God Father in the Old Testament? No one. No one. Who else in Jesus' day calls God Father? No one, but Jesus does. Even that is a claim to his divinity. And so why doesn't Jesus know the day or hour then? If Jesus is God, why does he not know the day or hour of his return? Well, there are two reasons. The first is in humbling himself and taking on flesh, Jesus set aside his divine knowledge. Not that he lost it, but he's showing the depth to which he identifies with humanity, that he is fully man, dependent upon the Holy Spirit in all things, in all ways. And we've seen that Jesus gets hungry, Jesus gets thirsty, Jesus sleeps, Jesus is crucified, Jesus is fully man. But we can't forget the fact that Jesus has predicted a ton of stuff. Already, to the T. I mean, remember when he told the fishermen how to fish, right? They've been out all night, hadn't caught a thing. They're weary. They're just coming in. And he's like, yeah, throw your net over to the right. And they're like, whatever. So they go ahead and they do it, and their nets are about to tear because they got so much fish. 
Or when he goes to Peter and he says, yeah, open up that fish's mouth right over there, that stinky thing right there, pulls out two coins to pay taxes, you know, that's pretty crazy. Or when he goes and he tells two of his disciples, listen, you're going to go into this town and you're going to find this donkey that's tied up over here and you're going to say these things and they're going to let you bring that donkey back for me to ride on. Or even here in this chapter as he's detailed the destruction of the temple. Or when Jesus predicts his coming betrayal and suffering, and death, and resurrection. I mean, Jesus proclaims all of that to the T. I mean, it's clear proof that Jesus is the Son of God, that He predicts things He knows, right? So this is a plausible solution that, that Jesus is, is just showing His humanity here, but I think that there's a second reason, a reason that I actually find much more convincing. And it comes from our understanding of the roles and relationships of the Trinity. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is three in one God. All persons have the exact same divine nature. They are of one essence. They are inseparable. They are one being, yet each his own person, having different roles, having different responsibilities, and relating to one another in perfect community. You see that there is unity and distinction within the triune God. And multiple times we see that Jesus says that he and the Father are one. And yet he also said that he submits to the Father in all things. In all ways, in all things, Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus obeyed God in all things. In the Trinity, we see submission. We see that... The Holy Spirit obeys and glorifies the Father and the Son, and that the Son submits to and obeys and glorifies God in all things. There is roles, there's distinctions, there's responsibilities right there in the Trinity. And this is not intended to be a demeaning thing. It is actually a glorious thing because we see really and truly that the Son literally obeyed God in all things, all things, including the knowledge of the day and hour of His return. J.I. Packer once said, Since the Son's nature is not to take initiative but to follow His Father's prompting, His reason for not doing certain things or bringing certain knowledge of certain facts was simply that He knew that His Father did not wish this done. What a perfect example of the submission to God. That Jesus' infinite worth and value is not lessened by His holy and correct submission. Instead, it is magnified. And it is seen glorious. And every every, um, understanding that we have of submission and obedience at that point, whether it be like... You know, members' obedience to their elders in the church or a wife's submission to her husband, all of that stems from the submission that we see within the Trinity. It happens there. It is glorious. But Jesus' point is this. You do not know the day or the hour, and so keep on guard. Stay awake. He's basically saying the same things to his disciples that he said again at his ascension in Acts chapter 1, 6 through 9 said, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Again, that's evidence that they still don't get it. But he says to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Friends, only the Father knows the time of Jesus' return. The God overall knows all things. From every thought and intention of your heart to the very last moments of this world's history, he knows it all. He alone knows and no one else. And if the Son submitted that knowledge to God in all things, 
We should do the same. Who are we to attempt to know the days? And rather than trying to figure it out on our own, why not look to the one who knows all things past, all things present, and all things future? You know, it's funny. We, we think we like the idea of knowing the future. Have you guys ever thought about this? Really? Have you ever thought, man, if I only knew how this thing was going to work out, that'd be great. If I only know if I got that job, right? How'd that go, by the way? You have to tell me. <laughs> you know, or whatever it might be. If I only knew this situation would work out this way, or if I just had knowledge of this, then my life would be great. But could you imagine how wearying it would be to actually know the future? How exhausting and difficult it would be to know all things? I mean, think about that for for a second. You, you have the, the knowledge of what's going to happen, but you have no power at all to change it. No power. And so you see bad things happening, and you'll try to avoid those things at all costs, right? You, you try to run from those things if you knew that they were happening. You wouldn't go face those. You would run from them. And the idea of sadness and pain and misery that you saw in the lives of your loved ones or just people that you came in contact with on the street would just be overwhelming. I mean, think about that. What would you do if you knew that the guy that you passed on the street was about to go get in his car and he was going to get in a car wreck and die? And you could do nothing about it. Would that be comforting? It'd be overwhelming. It'd be depressing. But even the good stuff would lose their flavor. I mean, we like the idea of knowing that things are going to work out the way that we want them to. And we get really excited about when good things happen. But if you knew that they were coming, would they really be exciting? I think that they would lose their delight, that they would lose their joy, that they would lose their significance because you knew it was coming. It's like when you know that someone is throwing you a surprise birthday party, right? You, you get the gesture, you appreciate the gesture, but you're not excited about it. You know it's going to happen, you know? You're opening up every present. You're like, oh, look at this. I knew that. Oh, look at this. I knew that. Like, it just wouldn't be fun, right? All of those future joys would lose their luster because of the fact that you know it's coming. I mean, the reality is, it's a good thing that we do not know the future because God has planned things in your life, good things and bad things, and he's done them for your good. But you won't see it that way. And you will not be willing to face some of the hardships and struggles that God would give you for your good, for your sanctification. Guys, we wouldn't be sanctified if we, if we knew the future, right? What we would end up doing is this. If we knew the ultimate end, the day or hour, what we would do is we would indulge in everything that this world has to offer and then try to repent our way in in those last few moments. That's what we do, right? If I know when it's coming, my motivation for being ready is gone. I know it's going to happen at this time and at this place, and so, man, we've got another two years and three months, so I think I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do that. And, you know, a couple weeks ahead of time, then I'll kind of get my life together. That's what we would do. But here's the great thing about our ignorance of the future. And I want you guys to hear this really clearly. When fear and anxiety sets in because we don't know what's going to happen, and we're truly afraid, and we're truly worried about all of that, even though we don't have that knowledge, we can pray to the one who does. We can go to him, the one who holds the whole world in his hands. That's the gift that we're given. And that's the point. God is patient about bringing the end through Christ's return so that we would have time to repent of our rebellion and our efforts to live as if I am God and to trust in Christ's sacrifice for sin. And so rather than trying to play God, we need to repent of our desire for control and entrust our souls to the one who knows the exact day and hour that is what we are called to do and when christ returns he will come to judge and while he is away there is time to respond this is god's grace to us and if you have responded in repentance of faith great but you know tons of people who haven't and this is their opportunity for you to go out and proclaim the message of hope to them now is the time not then 
That is God's grace to us. Let's not look upon that lightly. Let's not like just waste away the days. Only God knows when Jesus will return. So second, we must be ready. Now let's continue. Now preaching lab guys, I want you to learn from Jesus here. He explains in verses 32 through 33, then he illustrates and applies in verses 34 through 37. Okay? Verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. As a good teacher, Jesus illustrates his point by giving a story of a master going on a journey. This master has servants whom he appoints, and he charges them with the specific tasks. For the doorkeeper, the doorkeeper is to stay on guard, to stay awake, to only let the master in. That, those are his instructions. And in the same way, Jesus is about to leave his disciples, his servants, whom he appointed, whom he is charged with the specific task of making disciples of all nations and by loving one another, because by loving one another, they would show those who are outside that they are followers of Christ. And so he gives this command regarding what they are to know, what they are to love, and what they are to do as his servants. A charge that is summed up most basically in the three admonitions that he gives. Stay awake. Stay awake, stay awake. Guys, it is not hard to find the main point of this text, is it? I mean, he says, be on guard, keep awake, stay awake, stay awake. Don't be caught sleeping, stay awake. Do you guys get it? Do you understand? Good. All right. I should also add that in verse 37 is an appropriate place to read yourself into the text. Okay? Now, I said before... When Jesus says, when you see, he is speaking to his disciples, right? That was his audience, and we had to keep that in mind. We have to know the context. We have to know the audience. When Mark adds that parenthetic statement, let the reader understand, he is writing to his original audience. So we can't read ourselves into that text. But here you have free reign to read yourself into the text. And how do I know this? Well, verse 37 right? It's impossible to miss. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, right? So read yourself in there. Josh, stay awake. Aaron, stay awake. Joe, stay awake. Read yourself into it. If you're looking for a direct word from the Lord, right? You have no further than to go right here. This is Jesus' word to you today. Well, I can say with all confidence, so cherish it, and by the grace, do it. Stay awake. There's your word. So what does it mean when Jesus says to stay awake? Well, for one, it means to look and long for the Master's return. All His disciples are given a duty of a doorkeeper to stand watch and to open that door only for the master and for no one else. That is their charge. That is what they are given to do. Now, you won't do that if you do not know that you have a master. You won't do that if you don't know that you have a master and that master has told you to watch the door, right? Unless you know who he is and what he has done, you will not long for and wait for and be eagerly observing and watching out for the master. So you need to know the master. You need to know what the master has done. Okay? By knowing that, you will want that master to come. And you won't open the door for anyone or anything else, only the master. Well, the master in this illustration is Jesus. We are to long for and hope for Jesus. And again, you're not going to get that unless you realize who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God, that He reigns over all things, that He created all things, that He deserves all glory and honor. And you won't recognize that unless you realize what Jesus has done, that not only is He the reigning Lord, but He is one that has 
came to this earth and lived a life that you and I could never live and gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin, for those of us who have rejected him and tried to live our lives without him and tried to live as if I'm the master, if I'm the Lord of my life. He died for that. He rose again to prove that he's the son of God and that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. And for those who would follow him, who would desire for him to be their master, that he will save them. We need to go deeper and deeper into that knowledge to create this longing for the master. He will come again. Second, to stay awake means to perform the tasks that the master has given you. Okay, he has put his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Okay, that work that he gives us is not to disengage from the world and to sit idly by and just gaze at the sky awaiting for his return. That's not the only task that is given. His servants are given the responsibility of taking care of his house. That's what they're called to do. For us, we know most clearly that that is to make disciples of all nations and to love and to care for His people, His church, His house. Those are the tasks most clearly that we are given. We are to do all of those things for the glory of God and the good of others, not to serve ourselves. Christ has given us clear instruction as to how we are live to live in this present world. We are to seek His glory, not our own. We are stewards of the blessings that God has given us in Christ, and we are to use them to His ends, to serve the Master, not ourselves. But staying awake is more than simply a longing, and it's more than simply just doing a bunch of tasks. It's also an ethic. It's an attitude. It's a motivation of the heart. Matthew says that to fall asleep is like being one of those in Noah's day who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were unrighteous and wicked, and they were completely unaware of the impending danger. He describes it as a servant who acknowledges that his master has delayed. And so rather than just keeping to the task, he begins to beat his fellow servants, and he eats and drinks with drunkards. He describes them as virgins who fall asleep and forget to trim their lamps awaiting for the return of the bridegroom or the wicked and slothful servant who buries his talents rather than investing it. Luke, in his account, puts it this way. He says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all of these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Friends, the purpose of this life, of this time, is not to go through life ignoring the Master. We're falling asleep. We're opening the door to your heart to anything that you would want to but to, want, to the one who it belongs to. It's not about trying to seek to indulge in every worldly pleasure that this life has to offer. I mean, so often we kind of think like, okay, I think that the next life is going to be great, but I'm not so sure, and so I want to make the most of this life now. I want to take part and partake of everything that this world has to offer. I've got to go and I've got to see all of these things, and I've got to do all of this stuff, and this is what it's about. And we begin to lose sight of the whole because we're so focused on the here and now, like the pleasures of the next life would, would not cream anything that this life has to offer. It will all pale in comparison. We so often go through life seeking to figure out what is permissible. What can I get away with? Like, where's the line between being in and out? It's not about seeking the glory of God. It's not about being above reproach and proclaiming His name. It's really about what can I do here and now to make the most of this life, to seek my joy right now, rather than deferring it for a greater hope. And so we begin to think about, okay, is it okay for me to date this person? Well, how far is too far? 
well, can I take this job and make all of this money and still be okay? Or, you know, or, or what, what can I partake in, right? How much can I eat? How much can I drink? What can I smoke? What can I not smoke? I mean, all of that stuff is what we begin to focus on, and it's losing sight of the whole thing. That's not what it's about. Guys, we cannot miss that. We need to be prepared to be ready to stay awake, to invest our whole selves in all that He would have us to do. And that is not to indulge here and now and live as if there's no hope. It's just the opposite. Friends, dissipation is the opposite of uprightness. It's the opposite of being above reproach. Drunkenness is the opposite of soberness. It's the opposite of having a discerning and thoughtful and intentional mind. The opposite of cares of this life is having cares for the next. But so often we go through this life and we just live like this is all there is. I'm quite content for Jesus to stay away because that means that I can do whatever I want to do. Now just repent. If I go too far, or Jesus' blood will cover that, I don't have to worry about it. Friends, we need to gauge our life the way that Christian does in Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? If not, it's an allegory about the Christian life written by John Bunyan. It's a great story. But Christian gauges every step that he takes, every step that he takes is measured by, does it lead him towards the celestial city or away from it? There's no in-between. Guys, we need to have that same type of mindset. It's not enough about what can I do, what is permissible, what can I get away with and be okay. It's about being above reproach and being ready for that day. Looking forward to that. Not losing sight and only focusing on the here and now. It is not about what is beneficial. It's about what is beneficial, not merely what is permissible or forgivable. And the reason why Jesus gives us, um, the reason why Jesus gives is that the master will return suddenly, and you do not want to be found asleep. All right, he likens it to a trap. Right? If you know a trap is there, you won't fall into it. Right? But it. The whole point is like it's going to come suddenly and you're not going to know that it's there. Or he talks about it, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Last time I checked, thieves don't set appointments for when they're going to come and rob you, do they? I mean, kind of the, the element of surprise is kind of key in, in, in theft, as far as I understand it. <clears throat> Matthew records the consequence for us. He says uh, that Jesus says when the... When he returns, the lazy, wicked servant will be cut to pieces and put with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Matthew 25 makes it abundantly clear that you do not, under any condition, want to fall asleep. He's serious about this. All right? And so oftentimes we make this joke. I forget who was a pastor or something. But, you know, and I think I made reference to it before. Is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? You know, that kind of deal. And we kind of make a mockery of that. But there is an element of truth to it. And we've got to be careful for that. I mean, if Jesus were to come back today, are you doing the things that he would want you to do? Right? As an obedient servant, is this what you want to invest yourself on? Or are you going to be like, you know, like um, John Piper's illustration in Don't Waste Your Life. Look at my seashells. What do you think of my seashells? What do you think of my boat? Right? He's not going to care about those things. But I will say this. We are to make every effort to stay awake and to be ready. But for those who fail, and let's face it, we all do, there's grace. There's grace, and it's here in this passage. Did you notice that in this passage, Jesus mentions the four watches of the night in verse 35? In the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, and in the morning. This is where we see that secondary past fulfillment, okay? So far I've been talking about future, now I'm talking about past. Here, as you keep reading Mark, you'll see this lived out by Jesus and his disciples. Okay? In the evening, takes place in Mark 14, verses 17 through 25, when Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples. 
They're busy bickering. They don't get it. Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Judas leaves to betray Jesus. At midnight is found in chapter 14, verses 32 through 51. Pay close attention to this. Jesus asked his disciples to stay awake and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane as he goes further to pray. And he's weeping and shedding drops of blood. He comes back and three times there to find them asleep. And he asked Peter, could you not watch one hour? Could you not watch just one hour? He was betrayed just moments later by Judas, only to be delivered over to the council. And as they falsely accused them, Peter was outside in chapter 14, verses 66 through 72, denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And as soon as it was morning, in chapter 15, the council bound Jesus and delivered him over to the Gentiles. Friends, Jesus warns his disciples to be on guard and to stay awake, and yet they failed him not two days later. Friends, we are called to stay awake. We are called to make ourselves ready. But if we're honest, we know that we can't And we know that we have and we are tempted to fall asleep. We are. We continue to take our eyes off of that upward call of Christ and to set them on lesser things. But even there, there's still grace. And I would just say this. Don't let your past failures in falling asleep And setting your mind on the cares of this world keep you from doing what Jesus has called you to do. Learn from these disciples. When you fall asleep and Christ wakes you, then at that moment repent of your sin and go and take your stand to watch again. That's what you're called to do. So often we're just like, you know what, I failed, I've fallen asleep. And so I'm just going to stay asleep. I'm staying in bed. But that is not what he calls us to do. When we recognize that we have failed, we have fallen asleep, we are to get back up and stand watch again. That is what we see in the lives of the disciples, and we are called to do the same. Friends, Jesus will come again. It's a guaranteed promise that he will come back. God in his perfect timing has set that day and hour and we do not know when it will be. But what we do know is that we are to be ready. Where we're not supposed to know the future, we are to prepare ourselves for the day of our master's return. And so let us not fall asleep by focusing on the cares of this life. This is not all there is. This life is not all there is. Your education is not all there is. Your relationship with that significant other that you hope will lead to marriage is not all there is. Your children are not all that there is. Your job is not all that there is. What you can get away with or what you find to be permissible is not all there is. And so stop living as though it is. May we all stay awake. Let us live today in the hope of what God has for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this reminder, for this uh, nudging, for this alarm clock, honestly, in our lives of how we are to stay awake. And we confess that so often we lose sight of Christ's imminent return. And we look back over the course of the last 2,000 years and we think, well, if it hasn't been now, how do we know that it's not going to be another 2,000 years? And so we begin to just grow lazy and grow weary and to focus on dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. God, I pray that you would forgive us of our sin of sleep and that we would strive to stay awake keeping watch over the door of our hearts so that we would not allow anything to enter into that besides Jesus Christ.
God, we thank you that you have guarded us, that you have used this time for our sanctification, that as Jesus stays away, this is yet time for us to respond. This is yet time for us to proclaim. This is yet time for us to hope and persevere in the faith. And I pray that it would create in us a longing to see Jesus, that we would truly mean what we say when we say, Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.